Emilius the Mighty, the Goliath of Thebes, lived in the days when men worshipped strange pagan gods, believing in their magical powers with unshakable faith. It's a me, Mario. <laughs> uh, I kind of want to open the show with that, but <laughs> should I do the whole show in an Italian accent? Oh God. Uh, I mean, not if you want me to record the rest of it with you, but you're welcome to monologue for oh. as long as you want in <laughs> in whatever that accent is. Welcome to Snakes and Funerals. I'm your host, Evan Morgan, and uh, I have here with me today uh, my regular co-host, famed uh, bodybuilder and uh, Italian uh, actor extraordinaire, Eli Berger. Berger. I don't know why I said Berger. Welcome, Eli. I'm a Mario Bava. This is how we talk. (laughs) Um, yeah, well, so if Eli's, uh, terrible accent, uh, did not clue you in, uh, today we're going to be talking about some, uh, Peplum films, some Italian sword and sandal films. I assume anyone listening to this show knows what Peplum is, but, uh, I guess if you don't, uh, yeah, they're Italian sword and sandal films, uh, largely based on sort of history and mythology uh, of the ancient European variety. Uh, And that's what I'm going to say about that, because these movies speak for themselves. So uh, unless you have something you really want to say about Peplum as a genre, Eli. Uh, Yeah. um, I mean, it's interesting to me that, um, well, first, there certainly are precursors, um, both Hollywood um, epics and... um, Italian epics, but this uh, this fad began in the late fifties um, in Italy, and it really kind of ended more or less abruptly in the late in the like mid sixties, and it was replaced more or less with the you know spaghetti western and the Eurospy and a couple other um, different genres. Uh, but there are a surprising number of peplum made during this time, and I, I just want to stress that neither of us are really experts, but we're not at all. Yeah, we're <laughs> definitely uh, uh, fans of uh, these films, and um, they are so much fun. So I yes. guess without further ado, let's go to the first yeah. one. Yeah, I mean, I would just say, yeah, peplum is a, a topic of of uh, further research for sure, uh, and. Just going through the list of just the, yeah, the insane number of these movies that were cranked out uh, during that time. There are a lot of very uh, tantalizing, florid titles that I kind of just want to watch based on uh, the titles alone. So uh, I'm sure there's lots more to see out there. But uh, so but today, the three films we're going to talk about uh, are Goliath and the Dragon, uh, also known as Revenge of Hercules. Um, which is by uh, Vittorio Cotafavi. Uh, another Cotafavi, uh, Hercules Conquers Atlantis, also known as uh, Hercules and the Captive Women, which was the uh, title that was used for the American release and makes literally no sense for that particular movie. Uh, and then finally, we are going to finish by talking about Mario Bava's Hercules in the Haunted World. 
And may I just say another thing I love about these movies is that they all have like 15 different titles for some reason. Like they were recut and released in different countries. And, yep. Uh, or like I was reading that some of them had uh, – they were basically like retconned into a different series of these films. Mm-hmm. So I guess, I guess Goliath and the Dragon in the American release – isn't referred to as Hercules. He's referred to as Goliath, which I guess makes and they the added title make more a really sense. Bad dragon in that cut. That it's not. I'm in trying the actual... to remember if the first time that I saw this was. It might have been that cut. I can't remember because I'm pretty sure it was in English, and the one I watched this time was. Uh, I think it might have been. I, I've not seen the full version of that cut, but I seen that scene, and it is. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's it's not like there are high production values for the monsters in general, but well, <laughs> I, I, I do kind of wonder why they felt the need to do that. I don't know. But anyway. Espe- especially rubbery, rubber suits. Or... Yep. Um, yeah, so anyways, we're going to open with Goliath and the Dragon, I guess, since we're, we're already talking about it anyways. Uh, so I thought I would just open this one by reading a quote by perhaps the best known, or at least certainly uh, most famous to me, sort of proponent of the peplum genre, particularly uh, Cote de Favi specifically, Luc Molay. Uh, and so I, he wrote this little blurb on Goliath and the Dragon when it premiered at, uh, I believe it was the Venice Film Festival, sort of taking to task the programmers for playing a bunch of Antonioni kind of rip-off uh, high art modernist cinema in the main program and having the Cote de sort of shunted into a sidebar. Um, but anyways, I think this kind of lays out an interesting uh, a path to talk about these movies. So uh, Moulet wrote that we already knew Cote de as a technician, Cote de as mature and sen, a Cote de as a great director of actors and splendid humanist. The result of this latest work is much less human than we had seen in Una Donna Libera, and La Legiona di Cleopatra, but that which that which was lost here is compensated by an advance in other aesthetic qualities. And I, I kind of like that quote because I think that it sort of lays out the fact that the primary pleasure of these movies, the thing that I think its defenders really sort of take up, is that they are just so fun to look at. Like, I, I like that Moulet basically is arguing that he doesn't want to watch a bunch of, like, slow-moving Italian modernist dramas because the bright pop colors of Cote de uh, are just so much more aesthetically pleasing. Now, I I, I really do like um, Leventura and, and, and Antonioni. Oh, um, yeah, don't get me wrong. Yeah. We won't really be going into that today, but I I do find it interesting, as as, um, you alluded to, that um, the year this was made, um, you know, La Ventura came out, and La Dolce Vita, which I don't actually really like that film, I believe this, but I believe that also came out this year, and, but both are undeniably touchstones of Italian cinema, like, regardless of your opinion on them, Um, but then we don't think... Um, necessarily that there was this whole movement of genre films going on at this time, uh, such as this one. Uh, and, and, I, and I find that um, you know, really just funny to think about. Um, but anyway, this film, I think, well, first, it, it differs from the other films we're going to talk about today in that it 
pretty much opens immediately on Hercules um, doing um, one of his incredible feats of strength, you know, wrestling the uh, uh, Cerberus. Um, and something that I think is also unique just um, among these Peplum films in general is that this is shown to be, uh, or stated at, at the start of this film, to be the last thing that Hercules is going to do to atone for his sins, essentially. Um, and it makes you think of him as an older man. A lot of this film actually makes you think of him as that and as a father. Um, but I do find it striking that it opens with that. And that um, beginning scene after he gives the bat thing, I'm not sure exactly what that was. <laughs> yeah, it's some sort of rubber suit bat thing. It kind of has like a very cute little face when <laughs> when you see it. Oh, yeah, uh, I felt bad it, when it died. It's Come a, on. Yeah, it's kind of a strange. Anyways. Yeah, but, but when he finds that um, glowing red stone and, and raises it up and he's... Um, bathed in shadow because this is so bright and, and um, mystical, I, I think that really does go into what Moulet was saying. This is... That part of these films, that aspect of it, is, I think, more or less surface level um, to an extent, but it's a beautiful surface. Um, you know, it's uh, um, very plastic, very pop art, and... Um, there is, um, there's a, there's a weird sort of, you know, mysticism going on throughout all these films, not just that it's in this fantasy setting, um, but, uh, Kodavafi himself, perhaps apocry apocryphally, was, um, quoted as calling his films neomythologies, and I find that if he did say it, it, it would be fitting, because, um, there is this effort in this film to, I think, shoot them in a way that, um, you know, I'm, I just realized that neo-mythology might actually be a slight neorealism. Sorry. Um, <laughs> no, I didn't, hadn't thought about it that way, yeah, but um, <laughs> I do kind of like that. Yeah. Um, and if neorealism is creating reality, this is a way of re-envisioning re fantasy. And I think at the height of these films, when they work at their best, that's exactly what they do, um, is that they reinterpret, um, you know, these classical myths, um, in not necessarily, uh, a particularly radical way, but... It certainly adds their own style and panache to it um, that I think just makes these movies so much fun and so um, enticing to look at. Yeah, one thing that you said about this one, too, that I think actually is interesting in kind of comparing it to the Moulet statement, because you had mentioned that the movie opens with this title card saying that it's the last of Hercules' feats before he is going to return home. And I guess it's also worth saying that this is the only one of the three films that we're talking about today that does not star Reg Park as the, as Hercules, as the lead actor. Uh, this is with Mark Forrest, who we can get into uh, 
Rick Parks. Oh, trust me, I, I will be getting into his qualities. <laughs> uh, but it, I, comparative, comparing Mark Forrest to him, Forrest is a much, I think, more serious actor. He's quite a bit more grim in this than than in the other ones, and he does look, as you say, I think, kind of older, or at least bears himself in a more kind of weary way. Yeah. I mean, and, certainly uh, he's not frail or anything. He, he's still uh, believably Hercules. Um, yeah, world-weary, maybe. Exactly. Um, and, but, yeah. uh, well, and I guess I would just say that, that or that rather, Moulet says that, that maybe this is, this film sort of loses a human touch that is more present in the sort of melodrama films that Kotavi had made uh, prior to the, the peplum genre. But I think that this is actually the, of the three films we're talking about today, the one that's most attuned to sort of the psychology of Hercules. And it opens with this, this scene of fighting the uh, Cerberus and whatever the bat thing is. Uh, but it, it pretty quickly settles into a more sort of uh, political and domestic space of, of uh, Greek life when Hercules returns home. So I do think that uh, this one is a little bit more focused on the human aspect of, of Hercules and less so on the extreme feats, although those are certainly present yeah. too. Um, and, you know, I, I completely agree. Uh, this is, I think, comparatively both of our least favorite of the ones we're talking about, although we both still like this one. Um, a Someone I know would definitely prefer this one to definitely does prefer this one to uh the other two because of that psychological element and and um how this film investigates Hercules' role as a father and that is certainly interesting um especially since his son like his son definitely vapes is is all I'm saying <laughs> his son is also what like do you think 5 maybe 10 years younger than uh, the actor, rather, is yeah. like 10 years younger than, than Mark Forrest, maybe. Yeah. Like, actually, I'm pretty sure that song. in the American version, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that the first time I watched this, it was because I rented it from the great, uh, wondrous Scarecrow video. But I'm pretty sure that they had a, like the English dub, and I'm pretty sure it refers to him as his brother in the dub, because I, they must have been like, this is just too weird for him to be his son, because he looks like 35 and... Hercules looks about the same age. Anyways, a digression, but... Yeah. Um, and yeah, that, that political element, I, I think... Um, that that definitely surprised me the first time I watched this, because I uh, expected it to be more fantastical, but other than that opening and, and a few parts later on, which I actually do think are the highlights of the film... Um, it does focus on, as, as you said, those um, political um, uh, conflicts and the familial conflicts. Yeah, I mean, it does seem to play on on a like a smaller scale uh, than the other the other two films. But then again, it also does have a scene where like an elephant. <laughs> almost stomp someone's face as a, a means to no, he does execution. Oh, yes, that's true. But he does, but the elephant does. That's true. I mean, I don't blame the elephant. Guy was screaming. Um, I really love the scene. Um, 
when Hercules offers up the um, magical redstone MacGuffin um, to the uh, statue of the Oracle, and it floats up um, and uh, assumes its place, uh, you know, perched on the statue. And then when he asks the Oracle a question, uh, she just pops up um, in front of this um, wall of, um, you know, like this uh, black void. It's a really fun touch. I, I can't get over just how fun these movies are. Yeah. I mean, and I think that, I guess, is maybe an obvious thing to say, but working in, I guess, the realm of neo-mythology, there is a way that these films are like much more or the, the boundaries between the supernatural, the mystical elements and sort of the, the more concrete elements of the film is, are really porous, which is just sort of built into the genre. Although I think it's somewhat interesting when you get to say like the Baba film, which is much more straight, straightforwardly focused on the, like the underworld and, and the mystical. Whereas this one, I think, because it spends so much time in the political world of this court and the, I can't remember the, the evil ruler's name sort of machinations to stay in power that when it goes for long stretches where there aren't these intrusions of the mystical elements, and then they sort of uh, pop back up, which is kind of an interesting contrast in this film, which you don't really see in the other ones uh, so much. Like when the centaur, so partway through this film, like a cent- the centaur just like shows up and kidnaps. Is it Hercules's wife or is it they? Uh, the no, it's his Hercules' wife. wife. Yeah. It, this I don't and I don't remember why that happens, but it just you it could, because it she, like, um, you know, offered herself up, um, basically asking for help, and then the mm. centaur came and fucked everything up. <laughs> but like it's like instantaneous, right? She's like, "Oh, I like I need help," and then yes. poof, centaur. Anyways, I mean, that kind of stuff is, yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of delightfully willing to take that stuff at at face value. I'm not sure if I have too much more to say about this film. Um, might be giving it a short shrift just uh, because I happen to like the other ones quite a bit more. Um, but yeah, I think this one just doesn't, the way that it resolves the, the political, uh, conflicts at the center, I don't think mesh all that well, or they don't provide like an interesting refraction of the, the central emotional conflict, which is Hercules's relationship with his family and particularly his son, uh, who he's not allowing to marry the the woman that he loves and it, they just those two threads of the movie just don't satisfyingly uh resolve really although i guess i did just want to point out i i do really like the the gesture that this film has of of hercules sort of in anger uh literally destroying his home that he's built and and knocking it down and the final image of the movie or the final kind of gesture of the movie uh is hercules back with his family rebuilding the home, which I think just sort of... I also really like um, when he snaps in anger and removes the stone from the statue, how it leaves a trail of blood behind on the statue's face, and you see that in close-up. 
Um, and well, also like in that shot too, the the statue's arm like mo- like it suddenly like moves in like it's oh, yeah, alive yeah. to like touch the the bleeding forehead. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's just full of little little gestures like that that are yeah, and, and a joy certainly is a very different Hercules than the ones that we'll get with um, you know Ray Park's interpretation, uh, especially I mean. We'll get to Park, but because he's so stern and then wrathful, um, you know, it, it does give you a, a sense of a weary, a wearier man, um, which I can see that being interesting to people. It certainly is at least somewhat interesting, um, but his son is just so awful. He's just a shit. Yeah, I yeah, I think your description of him vaping is if vaping existed in uh like early greece he would for sure partake exactly uh okay well uh yeah i don't know that i have much more to say about that one uh except that the next one has a hotter hercules (laughs) i don't know uh no leave that to me okay okay all right uh well we'll take a break and then come back and you can uh, pontificate on the muscly pleasures of Reg Park. Amen. Welcome back. Our second film today is also by Vittorio Cotafafi, um, and it's from the next year, 1961. Uh, this film is Ercole alla Conquista di uh, Atl- uh, Atlantide. As you can tell, I only speak English. <laughs> that um, was a valiant try, though. At least I did do it in my Italian accent. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, translating to English, it's um, Hercules Conquers Atlantis, also... I've also seen it as Hercules against Atlantis, and it's funny, um, when this film was going to be released in the U.S., there was an unrelated film about Atlantis, um, you know, in Greek mythology coming out in the U.S. at that time, so they changed it to Hercules and the Captive Women, and, you know, as per usual, you know, edited it and pushed it to hell. Now, I, you also might be wondering... How can you, like, whittle away a 90-minute like, or 100-minute movie? Um, they, they found a way. They found a way. <laughs> anyway. Um, and then in the other one, they added another scene. So, does it, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> American, uh, like, AIP uh, acquiring uh, foreign European films in the 60s uh, was a strange, strange business model, I guess. So I'm uh, a very big fan of this film. And uh, I, I do think, as you alluded to, some of it uh, does have to do with um, the particular actor slash bodybuilder <laughs> playing Hercules, uh, Reg Park, who is uh, a very fine Hercules and a very fine man. Um, and I really like his portrayal of Hercules in this, uh, which I will expand upon in a little bit, um, but... I just want to say that 
I don't really love the opening of this movie. Really? Um, but I can I see, love the opening. I can see why someone might, yeah. Um, but I, I do find it a bit tedious, and, and I think I, I do find what? the comic relief <laughs> elements of this movie a bit tedious, and I just would prefer, prefer if they weren't there. Um, however... Um, having said that, I, I think this is a massive improvement um, upon um, Kodavafi's last film, and I'll give it to you, Evan. Well, I'm going to back up here for the to the opening of the movie, because I love the opening of this movie. I think it's funny, too, that you mention, uh, again, why Rake Park is a, a, some, a more interesting Hercules. Like, the opening, I think, really establishes what I like about his performance. He's so the opening of the movie, well... Over the credits, there's in a bar, basically, all these people drinking, and there's sort of this uh, woman that's dancing uh, over the credits. But then after the, the credits actually finish, it turns into a, a bar brawl. Yeah. And Hercules is just in the middle of this bar brawl at a table trying to eat his lunch or whatever. And all these people are, like, being thrown into barrels of wine and, and whatever all around them. And yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty broad and slapsticky, but whatever that works for me. But what, what I appreciate about it is that Hercules, Ray Park's Hercules is this like solid center in the middle of the frame at this table in the middle of this fight, just trying to eat his food. And he just seems so amused. Yeah. yeah at everything that's happening around, he's just so cool. Yeah. And so, and just like always has this like he has Ray Park has a great smile as an actor and like he just like kind of has this smile as, and these people are like sliding across the table and he's like pulling his like you know slab of meat off you know as they like take his plate off um, and I think it just really sets the the tone for this one especially you know thinking about it in proximity to Mark Forrest's more uh, dour uh, more angry Hercules to transition to this, this opening, I think it, it makes it clear what's special about, about park. I think in this role, I can agree with that. I don't necessarily think, um, I enjoy the rest of the brawl, but I absolutely do agree that it, it sets up his character mm-hmm. well like that. And, um, something that I noticed upon this viewing was just how many scenes, uh, in which, at some point during the scene, he will be lying down um, or sleeping um, or knocked unconscious. But he is um, very laid back throughout this film. And and I don't mean that uh, he he's bored or anything like that. Um, but I, I do get this impression that uh, this version of Hercules is this... Um, Titanic strongman who uh, has a sense of good, but uh, can't really be bothered, and it is endearing in that way. Well, yeah, and I think there's this way that he just... And again, I don't... I've certainly not seen uh, Ray Park in any other movies aside. I don't even know if he really did it in any other movies aside from from the Cycle of Hercules films. But he... The way he cracks that smile, like, he's like kind of... I wouldn't say like in on the joke, but it's almost just like he's just amazed to be there and just like to be doing this. And it lends to the character of Hercules this kind of 
similar sense that he's always just like a little bit surprised it seems like at his own ability and his own strength and endurance and he just like does something and kind of just like gives himself a little uh pat on the back with each smile i don't know yeah it's 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 very endearing yep um god this film is so beautiful to to look at um and i i think when this film really gets going um I am jumping ahead a bit, um, but it is once he gets shipwrecked uh, and washes up to see the woman who is fused, turning to stone in the wall. Uh, Arguably the only captive woman in this whole yeah, movie. So Exactly. And, and then you consider the whole populace of of women in Atlantis captive, maybe. It's I don't a more, know. like, political reading <laughs> that I, exactly. I uh, given um, that title, but... But you get uh, the sense that he has, um, you you haven't really seen anything other than those that flash of red um, near the near the beginning. Um, you really haven't seen anything um, that's much fantastical uh, in this movie. But uh, you get the feeling that he is on uh, another world or an, another planet, even because I think this film feels like a sci-fi mm-hmm. uh, in some ways. Uh, and it's a really, I think, unsettling image. And, and I know some, you know, people may, you know, mock the low budget, but um, I, I, I find it really powerful to see, um, you know, the women who have already been turned completely into stone, uh, and, and then this, you know, um, you know, poor woman who is nearly uh, complete, completely there. Yeah. yeah, like her her cries for help and the – like she's there because Atlantis, which is ruled by her mother, like sacrificed her uh, to Proteus, the, the god that guards Atlantis. And the movie I think t- like takes her pain and like the shame of her return but also the relief – uh, of seeing her family again, like relatively seriously, and yeah, I don't know, I I feel it. Yeah, and yeah, and when she's let loose from the wall, all that blood. But yeah, um, Atlantis is, I, I think it's it's just a great example of a spectacle. Um, I I'm I'm interested in the construction of these sets. Actually, I don't know too much about that, um, but it it does lend a sense to being um, a you know, strange forgotten kingdom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the sets, I have no idea either like what the budgets were like or anything. I mean, I assume they were relatively small, but the sets seem genuinely quite towering here, and I feel like I usually have a pretty good eye to spot when something is like, like a, matte, yeah. a matte painting yeah, or a miniature. But a, there are scenes where the people are like walking around in the, especially like the main throne hall of Atlantis where it looks like they just built like a giant giant throne hall that's like 10 stories high which I'm sure they didn't but the craftsmanship uh, around that kind of stuff in this movie is yeah and and these uh, these palaces and the the systems of caves in these movies is um, I think almost deeply Langian do you know what I mean 
yeah, call back to first episode of exactly. funerals. Well, yeah, that, that statue but, of uh, Proteus almost reminds me of the uh, statue of the goddess uh, in Tiger Vashnapur. Yeah, I was thinking watching this one also about uh, the Indian epic, and actually all of the all three of these films sort of at one point or another certainly the the Baba like have these underworld spaces that uh, are a lot like the caves uh, in that film. So yeah, and, and you know these interiors. I mean, when Hercules first enters the palace, even he who has been shown um, to be um, so imposing, if you know, nonchalant uh, in this movie so far, is dwarfed by these doors. Not dwarfed in strength phys- physically, he was able to open them, but um, you know, and, and just to give what the viewer, I think, a sense of scale and importance. Uh, yeah, the the scale seems significantly stepped up from, from Goliath and the Dragon, uh, uh, for sure. And like I think this this one, I don't know. Maybe it doesn't spend more time outdoors than the other one, but it feels like the the sequences that are shot outdoors here that Kotafavi bends the landscape to his will a little bit more. If that makes sense, he makes them like the outdoor sequences in in Goliath and the Dragon. There's like a bear fight in a field that we didn't mention. Uh, they feel a little bit more like they were just kind of shot you know, in the, in the hills outside the studio. Whereas this really feels like they scoped out these like big rocky island kind of landscapes. Um, Certainly. And, and they're I, I equally think as that, striking yeah. as the sets, I think. Yeah. Well, not equally as striking. And, and well, I must say that I, I do prefer the uh, set and when, what he does with the set and in these layers of deceit and, and of traps of caves upon caves. Um, really um just so fun this is a very pro cave podcast caves are great like interiors caves <laughs> bunch of more fun. caves in movies exactly <laughs> this should be caves and funerals caves and funerals it's, it sounds darker I, maybe i don't know snakes are not that pleasant either yeah uh i, I like when he thinks he sees his friend and um, he goes to follow him and then pops upon a mirror. Do you remember that? No, oh yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's like a it's like it's like the weird force field thing, or I guess it's a mirror. I don't. Well, I mean, for I think for the purposes of the actual filming, it was a mirror. I know, I remember what it was diegetically. Oh yeah, um, no, no, no. yeah. It's not really explained, but yeah, yeah. But and it just happens all of a sudden. Um, you know, I, as I said, he is shown sleeping or, or reclining so much in this movie, and I'm not sure if this is just my, uh, him, you know, personal read on it, but um, the way he's shot by Kodavathi almost seems, like, erotic at times, mm-hmm. and that, again, might just be me reading something <laughs> that isn't there, um, but um, in that regard, I, I think this film is definitely a winner. Definitely. Um, I also really want to single out when you first see the pit with all the slaves. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure where I've seen it before, but it, it does remind me of something, I think from silent film, 
that I've seen. Uh, well, it kind of looks a lot like the scene in, again, the Indian epic when there's all the like lepers in the in the cave. Yeah, thing. which of course that does a vote silent film, but I'm not sure if that's exactly right. what yeah. I was thinking I of. But yeah, that, yeah. that's a, you know the um, plot line about slavery in this movie, um, and, and I I think might have been a way of um, you know evoking the labor camps that were in European consciousness at the time. Yeah, I, I think the movie's uh, plot politics are much more interesting than than the other film and, and Thornier. I, I hadn't thought about that, but I can kind of buy that reading. I was also, uh, in reading the film, so I, I can't claim this as my own, uh, reading about the film, I should say, I can't claim this as my own uh, sort of uh, interpretation of the film, but I saw some stuff talking about the... So basically in the film, Atlantis has this rock of, is it Uranus that's uh, basically underneath the the temple or their, their throne hall or whatever? Yeah. And if it's exposed to, it's like this glowing pit rock yes. thing. And if it's exposed yeah. to sunlight, that's what's going to cause Atlantis to sink into the sea. And uh, that the idea that that sort of represents a kind of like nuclear kind of radioactive power that uh, the film is also kind of playing with imagery of, of a post nuclear world is interesting. Uh, I'm not sure that I find that either of those is uh, a necessary element to enjoying or. Uh, no, I, I don't think it's necessary films, either, but, but, but I think you are onto something there. Um, I'm thinking of when, he um, is standing over that that um, illuminated pit. This is, you know, before he brings the light at the end of the movie. Uh, and, and he's almost raising his arms uh, for it. And it seems like something that's glowing and radioactive. So I can certainly mm-hmm. buy into that. Um, well, and, and, the, and the government of Atlantis is, like, pretty fascististic. Like, with, oh, with the slave camp and then the nuclear... And the uh-huh. weird blonde beer guy, and they're all like clones of. Him. Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. And that. Oh is, yeah, that's like even more Aryan and creepy. Suddenly, yeah. yeah. That I I think was both to give it an air of you know this is a science fiction other realm you know where this all exists and to show that she, I mean this empress is you know a fascist essentially and and mm-hmm. and, I, and I do think it might be reading a bit much into it. Um, but it, it's, it's also hard to ignore that, that sense, even if we're, he's not, you know, Kodavafi isn't directly comparing to say Mussolini or Hitler. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I love, uh, in, you know, in the scene with all those clones, uh, that shade of reddish orange, um, in that room. And there are these stairs that leads up to this gold door and there's another gold door beneath it. And it, it's... It's a it's a triumph of interior set design in movies. Mm-hmm. I, I love it. And yeah, and at the end of the movie, the how Kodavafi breaks from um, standard um, you know, continuity editing to splice in uh, shots of uh, actual volcanic eruptions, and I think that also does bring about some um, 
associations with nuclear explosions. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see um, the Empress, uh, or Queen, I forget, uh, in, in front of the statue of uh, Proteus, I believe it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and she is um, like dwarfed by the statue, even though you only see its like leg in the shot. Um, and, and you get the feeling of how powerful this presence of Proteus is, but it's finally broken. And it does give you a sense of catharsis and the end of fascists. But it's also just a strong... Uh, image of praying to a god that is about to fall. Yeah, I mean, the god is... Well, he's dead already at that point, isn't he? I mean, even by the time Hercules enters Atlantis, they're sort of already lost because he he basically slays Proteus in that. That yeah. scene where he frees the woman from the, the rock, so... Oh, yeah. Yeah, the sense that this is like a society that just can't, can't be sustained, uh, I think is is there from pretty much, yeah, the moment that he, he lands in Atlantis. So one thing I did want to mention while we're still on the topic of Cotafavi before we uh, switch over to Bava, as much as I enjoy this movie in particular, but but also Goliath and the Dragon, like Cotafavi is a very strange figure for me. I mean, these are the only two films I think that I've seen uh, of his, but I don't have a as clear of a sense of him, I think, as I do of, of like Bava. I mean, I've certainly seen more Bava films, Same. um, but he strikes me as a kind of as fun and pulpy as, and brightly colored as these films are. He does strike me as a somewhat intellectual filmmaker. I'm not sure if that's just sort of the, the way he's been received, the people who advocate for him, like, Moulet and and other people are themselves uh, sort of from a more like intellectual kind of French tradition, I guess, in in Moulet's case. But he doesn't like Bava's film, which we'll get to, has this like real kind of death drive impulse. And there's a kind of distance to uh, the Cotafavi films that they feel more planned out, more graphically designed, but maybe less emotionally and tonally pure uh for me so i kind of just wanted to to throw that out there because i think there's it just adds a sort of strange tone to these films in a way that that sort of cuts a little bit through the the pulp and the and the muscles and whatever oh i'm sorry you said something about muscles and i was distracted (laughs) um but yeah, no, I completely agree, and I, I, I don't think I mentioned this. Um, you know, this film in its butchered version was um, like done in an episode of that uh, TV show. Oh fuck, uh, Mystery Science Theater three thousand, yeah. Um, and but yeah, I mean, it, it it does go to show that these things aren't necessarily taken seriously, um, even though, and I I get it to an extent why someone might not take this seriously because i think part of it's do drag part of it um you know is a bit silly of course and and i the the production value for the um creatures can be you know a bit shoddy but 
you know, there there is um I think a lot worth that's worth worthwhile in these films. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah, and and I guess I just uh thought I would read this this quote from Kodafavi that I think I think illuminates somewhat his the kind of seriousness that he with which he took these films. And I think part of the reason that these films sometimes drag a little bit and uh, don't have the tightness of of maybe sort of genre cinema at its best, I think are somewhat because Kotafavi approaches them uh, at a little bit of a distance, uh, which is also, I think, what makes them interesting. But anyways, the the quote that, uh, uh, that Kotafavi said in an interview, uh, he said, The horizontal movement that is the dynamics of this kind of adventure, a very strong man, very wide things, corresponds to the width of the screen. Every film has its truth. A film in costumes has its truth in costumes. The costume must be worn in a certain way. The movement of the mouth, the expression of the eyes must be adequate to the costumes and the decors. It is a peculiar naturalness in the unnatural decor and situation. I don't even think we need to do this podcast. We should have just, we should have just read what Kodavafi said about his own film. I know. I mean, I found that quote and I was like, wow, that is someone who who really like took the craft and the art of these films seriously. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I will also say I, I do feel like, um, although there's, you know, a consensus, um, a correct consensus around uh, certain genre, genre filmmakers um, uh, of Hollywood in, not quite this era, but, you know, in the, in the earlier era, um, there is sometimes less so for the genre filmmakers like Kodafafi, um, who... Um, I think we're doing similar things uh, to a certain extent and also uh, approach these films with um, more skill and with more intellectual gravitas than uh, one would expect and that certainly more than were required. Uh, and it's it's that uh, effort beyond what is required that I think makes these films uh, often really beautiful and strange. Yeah, I think that's that's a great uh, a great point to end our discussion of uh, Kotafavi, I think. So uh, let's take another break, and then we'll uh, come back to talk about Mario Bava's Hercules in the Haunted World. I cannot help you, Hercules. The forces of evil have bound me to an oath of silence, and I must not speak. I'm not asking for myself. I'm asking for a completely helpless woman. The gods have not abandoned you, Hercules. Though evil may descend upon the earth like a sudden darkening of the sun, it can disappear as quickly. More than this, I must not say. Yeah, that Kotafavi quote is so great, isn't it? I was like so kind of gobsmacked when I found that yeah. quote. Yeah, it's just the on uh, KG on the for the film the little like blurb or whatever is in French and it's an interview uh, with Co- like a little bit of an interview with Kotafavi. So I just like threw that in Google translate. I was like, huh, I wonder what this is. And then it's like, whoa, I guess Kotafavi was not a hack. Let's so Evan, are, is, I, I'm just trying to understand what you're saying. Are you saying that Google translate is your real son? <laughs> Google translate is my real son. <laughs> All right, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
I, I was surprised that we somehow managed to get a Mountains Made Apart For a movie I uh, hate, reference. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, let's uh, talk about okay. a movie I love. <laughs> uh, okay, welcome back. And uh, we're going to wrap up our discussion today with Mario Bava's Hercules in the Haunted World. Uh, and this was, so I had seen the other, the Goliath and the Dragon, and I hadn't watched uh, Hercules Conquers Atlantis until we decided to record this show, but I had seen Hercules in the Haunted World uh, before, and this one was the one that I was more drawn to, although I think I may have grown a bit more on uh, Hercules Conquers Atlantis uh, since I saw it last week. But I do think that there is something about this film, and I think it speaks to maybe what is more clearly distinctive about Bava as an artist uh, compared to, to Kotafavi, uh, although, again, certainly not a Kotafavi expert by any means. Uh, but this film is much more of a straight shot, exactly what the title says it's going to be. Uh, Hercules, again, played by Reg Park, uh, travels to the underworld to... Uh, what is he going to get? He's going to retrieve some mystical item or whatever. I forget what it's called, but I know its purpose is to um, take his to snap his wife out of right. her fugue state, which is caused by the evil right by the great great Christopher Lee. Yeah, so I want to touch on the wife's fugue state a little bit more, but whatever. Yeah. The plot's not really relevant here. Basically, it's an excuse for for Bava to conjure up. Uh, a lot more of the sort of horror imagery uh, inflected with the light and the pools of darkness uh, that he is, uh, I think, pretty well known for. So it, it definitely feels like a, a bit of a departure from the other films, uh, even though it sort of is was a continuation of this same cycle of films uh, that Kotafavi was working in. And uh, I think bears uh, Bava's touch uh, quite a bit uh or at least it's Baba's touches is, is quite clear. Uh, and one thing I guess I did want to mention is at the outset that you talked about the, the traps in uh, Hercules conquers Atlantis. This one has at least as many, if not even more oh, yeah. death traps. And I just, I love sort of the, the death trap cinema uh, lineage. And this film is, is right in that when Hercules uh, goes to the underworld, it's just a, a series of, of death traps to be overcome one after the other. Can we talk uh, about the film before he goes to the underworld first? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, not counting the... It's funny because I think that the few sections of this movie that take place in, like, normal outside in daylight are, like, completely perfunctory. They're not awful or anything. They're just, like, get to the good stuff. But, um... The so from the from the palace um, where Christopher Ling where Christopher Lee has assumed the the role of king, um, it is um, not that visually different from the haunted world. Um, there is uh, a lot of very uh, gloomy colors um, and a lot of uh, reds and blues and, and, and purples that fill the sky. Um, as if this is a place stricken with blight, and the um, palace hall uh, is supported in the background by this 
very dark black polygon, um, which yeah, it's insane. Yeah, <laughs> it, it looks crazy. I mean, it, speaking of sci-fi, like that looks like totally something out of uh, a like very modernist science fiction film. I know it's it's so good, and the Oracle. Oh, the Oracle scenes in this are. Among, I think, the no, most... I, I just want to say, I, I did praise, and, and I stand by my praise of the Oracle scene. In, oh, Baba's uh, Oracle in, is... In, yeah. Um, Ercole, uh, Hercules' Revenge, um, and, and that's fine. But this Oracle, which almost seems to draw on uh, Eastern sources, and, and yeah. I'd be interested uh, to know exactly why uh, I wasn't able to find anything about that. Um, but it is, I think, one of the best scenes in a movie I can think of. Uh, oh, yeah. I was going to say, I think it's among Bava's most remarkable visual achievements in a career that is stuffed with them. But, yeah, it is. That red and green um, in, in in this uh, dark, reflective background. I love it. Yeah, it's like the the area in front of her is like this, like like, almost like oil-looking pool. And yeah, it's like dark and reflective. And then the way that the light, the green and the red and the blue kind of in the background alternate, I mean, it almost feels like 3D, like you're wearing like old 3D exactly. glasses. Uh, it just like, I mean, it almost like pops off the screen, which is a And a then cliche, you realize but, he hasn't even here. gone to the haunted world yet. <laughs> this is the normal world. This is the quote unquote nor. Um, I, yeah. Yeah. I mean... The actual, like, neuralists of the comic relief are, like, oh. you can tell Baba didn't even care about that at all, no. but it's okay because he put so much passion and craft into these scenes that, uh, or the, um, I'm not sure if it's a Matt Tay painting or what, that when they're in the ship and they're, and they're heading, uh, that's actually very interesting to me, um, that even though... You know, with Hercules conquers Atlantis, he sails somewhere and washes up on Atlantis. Uh, he uh, Hercules is sailing to the land of the dead, mm -hmm. and he gets there. Yeah, it's just like, like an game. island a little while away. Or exactly. Yeah. But, uh, but the way that the sky uh, shifts and uh, beautiful. Yeah. Well, I think it looks like they shot like ink. Like they backlit yeah. like a tank of of water or something, and then yeah, like dropped sure like black ink. Matte, but yeah, it was. I don't think it's a. Pain. I mean, it's certainly some sort of matte process to get it, you know, in the sky background. But it, yeah, I mean, it looks like they shot ink sort of dissolving in water. Uh, yeah, this like stormy, tumultuous looking sky. It's it's really gorgeous. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I think what you mentioned about the the outdoor scenes being sort of perfunctory is is quite true. And I think this film is much more set bound even than than the Cote Fabi's. Um, I think Cote Fabi has a more natural uh, ability with the outdoor sequences than Bava does. Who, yeah, I think you're right. Just kind of sloughs them off as as fast as possible. Yeah, and then when they get there um, to the haunted world, it is. They're uh, they're often shot in in these group shots of three, um, you know, because there are three of them, and um, the benefit of that I, I think is because you get to see all the orange light reflected off all of them, um, and it's just Bava showing off, and it's great. 
the Underworld in this one also has of the of the three films what I think is unquestionably the best monster. Uh, cute as the weird bat thing is uh, in in Goliath and the Dragon. This one has this like stone monster yes. that moves like at like a snail's pace, but somehow manages to be like the deadliest, uh, most evil creature that's like enslaved this group of of underworld women. Yeah, uh, and that one, you know, the costume again is is very clearly a little bit chintzy, but it's also quite. I will say it, it and, does it does fit in with the scenery very well. Yeah, the, like it, it, it yeah, it, that's exactly it. It it does emerge from from the and sets. I I do think that that this is why it is my favorite monster, unless you're counting the clones of the guy as as like a creature. Well, thing. the clones of the guy are more interesting, I guess. But this yeah, one's... but this I, I think is the best of the actual yeah. creatures. Right. Um, I really like the. Uh, What's weird is we haven't talked about the scenes of strength too much mm, mm-hmm. in any of these movies, even though that's kind of a big deal. Um, but I think my favorite, um, other than the ending, which we'll get to, is when he is retrieving the uh, fruit. Yes, the golden the apple from the yeah. tree. Yeah, that scene is great. Yeah, and I agree. I think that's the... You know, I think Baba has a... There's a really striking close-up uh, of his hand getting the apple, too, which I love. Oh, yeah. Well, the tree, like, falls down. Like, the camera's, like, on yes. the ground. Is that what you're talking about? And the tree, like, a branch from the tree, he, like, throws a, a giant rock up to knock it down. And it the branch falls right into the, the frame, and the apple's, like, right there in the center. And, yeah, and his hand just comes down and picks it up. And, um, when, and when they find what they're looking for, it is... In the middle of this sea, I forget what it actually is supposed to be, but it looks like this red-orange magma, and the sky is orange, and it, uh, the the stone is just glowing in this central island. And ah, uh, yeah, beautiful. you know, I, I do think that Bava. I mean, you might disagree. I don't know, but that I think Bava has a better hold on the set pieces than Kotafavi does a bit. I, I think that. Um, no, I can, agree. I agree. Okay, yeah, I think he can get a little bit slack, and I think especially if you look at like the opening of Goliath and the Dragon, the fight with Cerberus, it's just like not a very excitingly cut and conceived fight sequence. Like, Kutafavi is very good with the the more like graphic pictorial elements when the movie kind of comes to a standstill and you get the sense of space. I think in like the the sequence where he retrieves the golden apple or the fight with the sort of like skeleton flying skeletons at the end. Uh, yeah. Baba has a much better sense of, of making the, the set pieces more thrilling and the stakes. Uh, well, I, I think another way I would put it, uh, and, and I agree with you, this, this is actually my favorite movie of the ones we're talking about today. Um, neither are necessarily great action directors, Agreed. but Baba manages to make that not an issue with the way that this, that he films this. Mm-hmm. Whereas Kodavafi, for, for the many virtues that you know are in his films, you know, still puts that action front and center, even though that's not really a skill of his. Right. Well, and I think Bava has a more varied group of shot setups at his disposal. Sure. And I think part of what, like, yeah, he's not a particularly great director of action, but he, he more frequently than Kodavafi just finds a way to frame what is otherwise, you know, somewhat 
uninterestingly choreographed action with a very strange angle where he throws one of his uh, gels on it and yes. it just it, it livens it up just a little bit a little bit more. Like there's nothing in the Kotafabis that get got my like blood pumping as much as the the part where he's after he's fighting off the skeletons towards the end and he's chasing Christopher Lee is like escaping through this these two walls of a a cave closing in. So Christopher Lee is actually the best monster in these movies. We forgot. Well, that's that's true. Because yeah. and I I love the Christopher Lee's in in this, even though they don't use his real voice. Um, but the guy no. does a reasonable Christopher Lee impression. It's not sure, and you you can still get Christopher Lee's gestures uh, and his facial expressions. Um, I I really like when. Um, you know, after they get back, um, or I might be remembering this slightly out of chronological order, but essentially, um, Hercules' wife is hiding from Christopher Lee, and, and you see, uh, her in, in the right-most part of the frame, uh, whereas Christopher Lee's shadow, which is draped in blue, is in the left-most part of the frame, and she's looking off to the left left uh and back like she's looking at christopher lee who is not exactly in frame um but what i love about that is bob and man like keith managing to turn this into a horror movie even yeah. though this is explicitly not that genre right and yeah. of course he ends it with you know zombie skeletons because he wants to make it into a horror movie again yeah well and uh Again, I you we had mentioned the wife earlier, and I think the the wife's sort of I, I don't know maybe I just wasn't paying close enough attention, but the what exactly her like affliction is other than just Christopher Lee like called up the gods to that's exactly like, what it is. Yeah, I mean it's not like there's more, no scientific yeah. explanation there. <laughs> well, clearly it's, I wasn't looking for for hard science here, is but involved he's with just, the occult and she and he yeah is like his himself. evil just yeah. But uh, early on, when, her. Um, she uh, emerges from that coffin. That that almost reminds me of something out of um, you know Black Sunday. You know? Or the whip in the body is just the one that I was. Uh, no, I, I I just wanted to certainly I just wanted to I guess pick one that preceded this one. Mm. I guess, but yeah, whip in the body I think is the obvious, which is maybe my favorite Baba. Yeah, well, um, and and the reason I mentioned that one is I think. Again, I was talking about how there's something maybe just a little bit more emotionally pure about about the Baba uh, take on the genre, and I think that the Hercules's wife, Dianara, right? That's her name. Yeah, uh, Dianara embodies this sort of Baba death impulse, like uh, sort of the the main female character. I'm I'm blanking on the actress's name in in the Whip and the Body. This sort of innocent yet like compelled to like death and the underworld um this fixation on it which i think kind of mirrors bava's own uh as you said tendency to like make this into a, a different genre that he's just sort of enthralled to um the the darker more horror elements of it uh and i just find that that emotion of of being drawn to that uh i can tap into that i guess and and I find that interesting. Certainly, and and I and I wonder, I I, I wonder what Baba's version 
of uh, Hercules Conquers Atlantis would have been. I wonder if it would have looked anything like this. I think it would have. Um, and as much as I, I like the movie, that that is certainly uh, an inter- interesting thought experiment to have. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that one advantage I think Atlantis definitely has is uh, I think Park is given um, more room to breathe in that movie than he is here and, and is shown a bit more lovingly by the camera. Um, so that is something I, I think you could argue in Atlantis's favor. But overall, I mean, there's really no contest that this is the best movie um, Probably with the Peplum genre, even though I was, well, I, I, I went in, I went in feeling that way. But after sitting with Atlantis for a while, uh, I may even prefer that, or at least find them to be uh, co-equals. But I definitely agree that that Park is is used here a little bit more anonymously, where he, whatever his his acting talents were. Uh, they're they're put to to clearer use, and he seems to be a little bit more in tune with with Cote de Favie's tone uh, than than Baba. But not that I think that's a, a problem here. It's just uh, as you said, uh, it gives him more room to breathe in, in the Cote de Favie. Yeah, this film is so wild, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, I'm trying to remember uh, the other stuff that even happens in this movie because mostly what I just remember is like yeah, crazy skies and uh, the underworld sequence. Oh, there well, is that's the really what you we, do remember we, with Baba. You yeah. remember the color and you remember right. the lighting. Yeah, we haven't even talked about uh, well each of these films. Well, maybe I guess not the first one, but both Atlantis and this one have a sort of uh, like male friend of Hercules who is a. Uh, okay, the reason we haven't talked about it is because they suck. Okay? Yeah, the the actors are not great and the characters are not that interesting. Uh, but a strange like conceit of these films that there's this sort of sidekick character who in both of them sort of betrays Hercules under the spell of whatever it is that Hercules yeah. is fighting. In this case the psychic character falls into a vat of lava in the underworld, but then is like resurrected basically in the underworld by, uh, Persephone who, and his, his love for Persephone and, and his sort of sneaking her out of the, the underworld, uh, and shanghaiing her up to, uh, the, the world above partly causes some of the, the narrative incident in the film. Sure. And, and that is actually, I think an interesting contrast. And I'm sure something that Bava must've loved, uh, that, um, Hercules is making this journey to the land of the dead to bring his wife back from basically a state of, you know, living deadness, essentially, um, you can look at it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but meanwhile, while she does, does literally enter the movie rising out of grave. Exactly. So. Um, meanwhile, his friend is bringing literal death back to the real world. Mm-hmm. Back to the living world, I should say. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, real. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, but. what are you talking about? This is this is neorealism. Oh, obviously. yeah. Yeah, I do like the idea of of neo mythology as a slight against uh, or a 
sort of taking the piss on on neorealism. That's I wonder if that still was. I don't know. I I'm I'm going with that. I don't know. Yeah. So far, we haven't been able to find the actual quote where Gotafavi says that. So it's uh, too good not to. I'm gonna assume that that that's the case. So. Well, I don't know. Anything else you want to say about about these movies? I feel like we could just spend another hour like running through the visual phantasmagoria that these movies offer, but um Greg Park was really hot. That's that's all I think I he's have. hotter. Is he hotter that's in this why, one or that, in Atlantis? Uh, he's hotter in Atlantis, but oh, that's disagree. why I decided disagree. to do this uh You disagree. I think he's kind of hotter in this one. I mean, I don't really find it he's He's like a little muscly for my taste, but well, uh, we'll let the listeners decide. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, but uh, I am. I, you know, is this the only peplum that Baba made? I think it is, right? It's the only Hercules peplum. Oh, that's true. I, that I, Eric and the Conqueror film, right? Yeah, and yeah, I and I that. and I read. I'm not sure. I haven't seen it. That he did a segment of uh, an Odyssey anthology film. But I haven't hmm. seen that. Hmm. Yeah, and I think he he like co-directed and, and was a cinematographer on some of the early peplums that were like American co-productions. I think. So like yeah, the, he was assistant uh, director on Jacques Tourneur's. Um, oh yeah, right. Giant uh, Marathon. Oh yeah, right? that's not. Yeah, that's not the greatest movie, but uh, it is not. <laughs> but, but whatever. I mean, it's got it some nice Baba touches. Yeah, but exactly. More Baba than Turner, I think, but but not much of either, really. Exactly. But anyways, uh, I digress. So any last last words, Eli? These movies are really fun, and I would hope for a revival, except that would mean they would be two and a half hours long and cost $300 million. I, yeah, I was thinking you had asked, like, we were talking the other day about what it might be like to have a peplum genre now, I guess. And, and there's a lot of actors who you were saying would be quite good to watch in it, uh, in yeah. someone. Who... I mean, we have, um, you know, Bahubali and that's getting a sequel at the yeah. end of this month. Um, well, and I was also not, thinking about, it's not the same, even though I'm looking forward to that very much. Yeah, I am too. But I, I think, uh, I, I did think of Paul W.S. Anderson, especially in watching this one, like those, obviously very uh, different milieu than the peplum, but I actually feel like in spirit, especially as we talk about these films today, like those are, I think quite close in spirit to, to these films, their adventures. They are really, truly like serial type storytelling. They just kind of pick up and oftentimes leave behind uh, plot threads uh, at will. And it, they're about Mila Jovovich's uh, ability to perform ridiculous uh, feats of strength uh, and they have a lot of death traps so I don't know I, I was wondering watching uh, the Bava if if uh, PWSA was a fan but I don't know but I, I will say that we do need more um, subterranean and death trap <laughs> cinema yes uh, death trap cinema canon for sure so well, yes, this was uh, super fun. We should, I think we should do another Peplum episode at some point down the line. I'm, I feel like my, the book is not closed on this topic for me. If you can find some others, uh, or if our listeners would like to suggest any Peplum um, besides these three that they feel really strongly about... I saw a, a cycle of them that were like Egyptian-themed, so that might be fun. 
I've, I've seen a couple of the Machiste ones, but they were not good. Oh, yeah. I also saw there was a weird cycle of them that uh, took place in China. I saw, like, at least two or three that were, like, Hercules or Machiste or whatever the other, uh, like, strongman character was. I can't well, guess Goliath. Is there a Peplum cycle? versus Wuxia. <laughs> yeah, well, they, that's kind of what it sounds like. I'd be down for that. <laughs> so, anyways, a topic we may revisit uh, if I am in need of some more eye candy at some point. Or if I want to uh, try out to my accent again. <laughs> uh, yeah. <I've, laughs> maybe I'm going to change my mind. Uh, okay, well, I think let's, let's, end this, let's end this thing. So, Until next time, I'm Eli Berger. This is very formal. <laughs> and I'm Evan Morgan. Uh, thank you for listening. And uh, have a good day. <laughs> uh. What was that? That was the haunted world. I don't want to do this for the end anymore. <laughs> uh, if you, your, oh, come on, your Italian accent was <laughs> much what more accent? ridiculous. What accent? <laughs>